Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. Hey, Reg Roo, how you doing, sir? <laughs> you ready to go? Take your last bite there. I'm just wondering, so if if we recorded this podcast at a different time, uh, like if we did it earlier in toward the morning, then would you, instead of a Subway sandwich, would you have a breakfast sandwich? Or if we did it later in the afternoon, would you have a snack? Would you have a bag of chips? I'm just wondering if the recording of the podcast is what stimulates your appetite or... <laughs> Okay, you done? Okay, good. <laughs> Here's a quick fact, quick question. When does a bite become a chew? Hmm? 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 Think about it. All right, I'll give you the three S's. I'll give you the uh, countdown. You give me the music, and I'll give you episode 376. How's that? Here we go. Okay. Swallow, you're set. Okay. All I have to do is hit a button. <laughs> All right, here we go. Star, smile, strong. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. There we are, just waiting for you. Where else would we be? But of course, don't forget, in addition to listening to the podcast, as a dedicated listener to the podcast, it's your job to also get and hit the streets, get out there. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion are much appreciated. Oh, you can't even imagine. If you like what you hear, don't forget, you go to WGNRadio.com, you hit the prompt for the podcast, then you hit the prompt for this specific podcast, and my goodness. A waterfall of podcasts will just drench you in a sea of information and entertainment. You will be drenched. You will be soaking wet with fun and games. And if you're not too careful, you just might learn something. <laughs> That's my Bill Cosby, by the way. Welcome to episode 376. I've told you on many occasions that my favorite sport is baseball. I played baseball. I can't even remember. I mean, organized baseball for probably at least 12, 13, 14 years. And various teams, uh, little league, traveling leagues, high school, and uh, and 
even before in little leagues, you know, playing out in the alley with a with a a, a, a soft league ball they used to have a soft league. It was it looked like a it was a little it was like a it was between a rubber ball and a hard in a, in a league ball a hard ball. It was an odd little ball, but it was interesting. We used to play wiffle ball in the alley so he wouldn't break anything. Oh, we had, um, we play lob. We'd go to the park and play lob, and you'd be hitting balls over fences. We also played fast pitch. People in Chicago might remember what fast pitch was. If you walked around, I don't, you don't see this anymore anywhere. But uh, several decades ago, if you walked around to any, especially it seemed, for some reason, it was at <laughs> at public school, on public school walls, public grammar school or public high school walls, probably because of the fact that they had... They had big space there. They usually had, uh, you know, football fields or big fields or a lot of, a lot of room. And you would play something called fast pitch, and you could even easily play it with two people. That's what was so great about it. Um, but basically, uh, you had a rubber ball and a bat and a glove, and you spray painted. Now, I never actually did the spray painting. I never did the vandalism associated <laughs> with fast pitch. Uh, but if you drove around the Chicago area, you inevitably, on on many walls where there was some a wall and then in front of it a good amount of space, whether it was a field, whether it was a parking lot, whatever it might be, as long as there was a good amount of space, Facing out from that wall, you most likely saw a rectangle spray-painted on the wall with an X in it, inside the rectangle, and that's how you knew that that was a fast-pitch, if you will, field or stadium, because you, you the pitcher, it was just two people, and the pitcher just... And maybe and sometimes you play with four people and you had an outfielder as well. But the whole idea was to, you know, it was to hit home runs or to hit in specific areas. If you only had two people, if you hit the ball over here, it's a double. If you hit it over some, you, you looked around the area there and you said, okay, if you hit it past that tree, then that's a homer. If you hit it in between that tree, it's a double or something. And you accumulated points. And the pitcher, um, you were a little closer than you would be uh, on a regular mound, which is 60 feet, 6 inches. So that's where the term fast pitch came from. Now, it had some other names, too, but I can't remember. In my neighborhood, it was called fast pitch. You want to play fast pitch. And so that was if you didn't have enough guys to play a whole kind of lob game, if you didn't have seven or eight or ten guys, uh, when you did, when you did that, you usually had right field was out. You always there was always, uh, you know, special rules dependent upon how many people you had to play. I mean, now what's crazy? I drive past some of these fields at parks, and there's these beautiful. They've invested so much money in these beautiful manicured fields, baseball fields, during the day, and nobody's playing on them. You know, kids don't play baseball like they used to. 
uh, you know, now everybody has a play date and, you know, organized. When we, when we were young, uh, there, you know, we just got on our bikes and went. Our parents didn't even know where we were. We just made sure he got back by five o'clock. And so we would go and we would spend hours, uh, at the, the parks. Now the whole, the whole dynamic is very different. The irony is they have great facilities now and no one's using them when we had it these facilities were usable and they were used all the time <laughs> we would have killed for the kind of manicured fields that uh, that just sit barren now at many parks in the city and in the suburbs oh i think back and say oh my gosh where were you uh, you know 45 years ago or so these beautiful parks and these diamonds and dugouts and, and mounds and infield grass. Oh, my God. We had just dirt, just dirt. And I don't want to make it sound like, in my day, we didn't have any manicured fields or any, any dugouts to play. We played on the dirt. And it was, it was, it, it was filled with rocks and it was filled with, with, with cement and it was uneven, and it was dusty, and the ground was hard, and we liked it. We loved it. We came home with, 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 with cuts and bruises, and we didn't go to no hospital. We, we just put mercuricum on it, or, or, or what was that Band-Aid stuff? There was like some stingy stuff you just put on a, on a cut. can't remember it now. It came with a little green top on it. Ben... ben Benzate something. Jeez, I can't remember now. But uh, but anyway, so I've been playing baseball. Let me just say, I, I played baseball for a long time. And as, as much as I like hockey, I would say it's my second favorite sport to baseball. And it was my good sport uh, in terms of, of playing. As I said, I played for many years. I had a, I had a fairly successful high school career. Uh, was captain of my team senior year. I played... On the varsity, three years, I was a starting catcher when I was a sophomore, so that's pretty cool. And we had a, a regional championship team during that era. So uh, got my name in the paper and picture in the paper a few times over the, over the course. So, uh, yeah, I, I just I really enjoyed baseball, playing baseball, and enjoyed following baseball. As a little kid, uh, I didn't live uh, that far from Wrigley Field. didn't live that close but didn't live that far and lived near Addison. So when we were 10 or 12 years old, we used to take the bus, the Addison bus, just straight down Addison to Wrigley Field by ourselves. Once again, unheard of in today's world, right? Uh, it was a different time, but uh, so sat in the bleachers, sat in the grandstands, got the Ron Sandals pro pizzas, got all the... Uh, the, the 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 scorecards. I used to I used to keep scorecards when I used to watch Cub games on TV. So I was a big baseball fan, big Cub fan. Um, got a chance to play in Wrigley Field when I was uh, eleven years old. In fact, this week is the anniversary on August eighth. When I was eleven years old, I played for the city championship in Wrigley Field, which we won. Kilbourne Park on the northwest side. We were city champs, and we beat Gage Park on the south side. 
I believe it was the score was eight to one. Yeah, we had a good time. Got got to uh, meet the then mayor Richard J. Daly. In fact, he threw out the first pitch, and uh, I was the catcher, so I caught the pitch. The ceremonial first pitch. Still have the baseball that he threw to me and signed. And I still have a photo that was taken because the newspapers came out to, to, to cover that game. And I still have a photo uh, that uh, I got from the Tribune, I believe, or the Sun-Times, can't remember which paper went out there to cover it, uh, of me with Mayor Daly wait as he's signing the ball. So it's a pretty cool picture. I, I posted, and I think I'll post it this year, too. Um, on my Facebook page on every August 8th. And then irony was then August 8th, 1988, 8-8-88, was the first day that of the first game that the Cubs played a night game in Wrigley Field. The lights came on on August 8th, 1988, and people may remember that that game got rained out. It was not an official game. So even though the first game with lights at Wrigley was... August 8th, 1988, it it really wasn't. It was the next night on August 9th that became the first full, real, uh, legitimate game. The first time they played, the game got, got postponed in the middle, and it wasn't even the fifth inning, so they called it off. It was a horrendous storm, a scary storm, lightning and, and thunder and rain, and they just couldn't go on. And then, my gosh, you know, that ticket uh, to get that, to be at the first night game, that was the hottest ticket in the country. Wrigley Field was famous for being the last baseball park in the country, Major League Baseball Park, to not have lights. All day baseball. It's hard to even fathom that now. But every Cub home game was a day game. Every, I mean, it doesn't even make sense in today's world. And it wasn't even that long ago, Right? I mean, what, 35 years? (laughs) So, uh, anyway. So, yeah, so baseball has always been my favorite sport. And so one of the things I've always wanted to do and visit was or is the the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Every year, of course, they have the induction ceremony. They just had it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, two players were inducted, Fred McGriff, who at one time played for the Cubs, as well as Scott Rowland, who was on the uh, the Cubs' arch enemies, the uh, St. Louis Cardinals, and also another uh, related Chicago uh, personality, uh, the Cubs' radio announcer, Pat Hughes, was inducted into the Ford Frick area of the Hall of Fame that uh, deals with broadcasters, TV and radio broadcasters, people like Vin Scully and and Jack Buck and and uh, and, uh, and sports writers and and broadcasters that uh, covered the game. Um, and so Pat Pat Hughes uh, was just in, inducted. What's which which is interesting is that now, ironically, the the radio team of Pat Hughes and Ron Sano on WGN Radio, right here, WGN Radio, that was uh, a popular uh, radio team for many years. Both now, Pat Hughes and Ron Sano, are in the Hall of Fame. 
Now, Ron is not in there as a broadcaster. Oh, I don't know why, because I really enjoyed uh, doing the uh, broadcast for Chicago Cubs. But but, uh, he's in there as a player. Finally, he was inducted the year after he passed away, which is, don't even bring that subject up to me. Although that's part of what we're going to talk about today, in, in part about the induction of players. Um, and then Pat Hughes just got in got into the Hall of Fame uh, as a broadcaster. So that's pretty ironic that um, that team that was so popular with Cub fans for many years, both of those guys are now in the Hall of Fame. So that's pretty cool. But I've always wanted to visit the Hall of Fame. I, you know, I, you'd see those plaques with the these gold plated plaques with the player's face on them and then there you know the, the the big controversy as well especially most players are on various teams you know what what hat you know because it's always a picture of the player with a hat on you know what hat what team are they going to be represented for the rest of eternity in this hall of fame you know which hat will they choose which team do they most identify with during their career? And sometimes it's a no-brainer. If they won championships, you know, several championships with a team or they stayed with a with a team for, for, for decades, which doesn't happen all that much anymore, and they're so identified with, with a specific team, then sometimes they will. Then, you know, that's the controversy. Are they going to wear a, you know, a Cub hat or a Yankee hat or an A's hat, whatever it may be? Interestingly enough, I saw a few... Uh, plaques of modern day players that had their, you know, their, their, on their plaque their hat had no insignia of anyone so i guess you can choose not to choose a team as well the player decides i think the player decides which hat they would want to be represented with them but uh one play, player for instance that i did notice specifically who did not have any insignia on his hat was a pitcher from the uh, the 70s named Catfish Hunter, Jim Catfish Hunter. And he had a very successful career, obviously, uh, in the major leagues, but with two teams. He won world champions, world championships, uh, as he was on, I think, the three, the, the, the three consecutive world championship teams with the Oakland A's. Um, and I don't know if he ever was on a World Series team with the Yankees, but he certainly was prominent with the Yankees and pitched many years with them, and yet he had no hat. He didn't have the A's insignia, of which he won was on the you know the, the three time three consecutive years in the in the mid seventies seventy two seventy three seventy four. The A's won the world champ world series, which is unheard of in today's world. There's very few repeat world champions, world series champions anymore, because teams change so often. The rosters change from year to year. Players leave with free agency or are traded because of their huge contracts or you know injuries, but back in the sixties and you know the fifties and sixties and seventies before free agency, teams would have a set roster for a good four or five years, and they had dynasties. You had these this Oakland A's team that won three consecutive World Series in the mid seventies. At the same time, in the mid seventies in the National League, you had the Big Red Machine, the Cincinnati Reds that had basically the same lineup 
for a good five or six or seven years, as did the the uh, the L.A. Dodgers. Same thing. They had a great crop of players, and they weren't trading them. There was no such thing as free agency where players had to, to could choose to the, and go to the highest bidder. Until the late 70s when a pitcher on the Dodgers named Andy Messersmith sued Major League Baseball and was then officially named the uh, a free agent. And there was this happened earlier in the 60s with a, a player named Kurt Flood. But I, I don't believe he won his case. But later in 78 with a... Um, uh, with the un- with the baseball union head Marvin Miller became very popular because he was the one that sued on behalf of the players union uh, to basically break the fact that the players are property and that the teams owned them and uh, the the court ruled against baseball in that long-held tradition, and therefore players now had a new freedom to play wherever they wanted. Based on, they signed a contract, then you had it, but if your contract was up, you just didn't automatically sign with with your team, which is basically what happened before. If a team wanted to sign you, they signed you. That was it. If they didn't, then they let you go. But they, if they wanted to keep you when your contract was up, then you, you sign another contract. But in free agency, when your contract was up, if there was another team that wanted you and, 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 wanted, and they would pay you more money, and that's where all of a sudden all the, the movement of players started more frequently, and obviously the, um, the salaries escalated. And Marvin Miller, ironically, is in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I don't think Andy Messersmith is. That's what's so funny. The player that became the first free agent, and I believe 1976 or 77, 78, something like that, I don't think Andy Messersmith wound up in the Hall of Fame as a player, but the man who sued baseball to give him that freedom to become a free agent is in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I've always wanted to, to, visit, the world, to the, visit the Hall of Fame. To see these plaques of some of my favorite players when I grew up that eventually, when they retired, were inducted to see the plaques of some of the greatest players of all time, like Babe Ruth and uh, Lou Gehrig and Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra and Ted Williams uh, and and Ernie Banks. And uh, and thankfully, now, Ron Sando, um, but some of the greats of all time, as well as some of my favorites not only on the Cubs, but just watching baseball as a fan and growing up and seeing them in all-star games or in World Series and things like that. And also noticing the players who were really good and are surprising are surprised that they're not in, which always makes for a fun debate, as well as some of the memorabilia from the game throughout its history. It all for the most part, lives at the Hall of Fame. And uh, as legend has it, um, baseball is attributed in its most popular form, having been discovered or invented, with quotes around it, 
by Abner Doubleday in Cooperstown, New York. And thus, that's why the Hall of Fame sits there. However, when you walk through the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, you realize that baseball in some form had been around before Abner Doubleday. And so I'm not really sure how he totally got the credit for it because there's exhibits that trace a form of baseball before Abner Doubleday's time. He may have given it rules and regulations and that's and therefore um, is credited with being the inventor of the modern game that we know of. But there's an exhibit in the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown that traces a a, a stick and a ball in the hands of Egyptians on temples, in the drawings, in the hieroglyphics, in drawings, in Egyptian temples of figures with a long stick and a ball. So I think humans have been playing baseball for a lot longer. Now, uh, you know, I don't know if, if uh, you know, we're going to attribute um, the invention of baseball to Ramses III or Ramses II in Egypt, but we probably could. But for whatever reason, it's Abner Doubleday. And uh, there's a baseball field not far down the street from uh, from the Hall of Fame called Doubleday Field. And there's games played there. Young kids, even adult leagues, play there on a regular basis. It's a small, very sleepy little town in the middle, literally in the middle of nowhere uh, in in upstate New York, uh, about an hour or so out of Albany. And I had never been, uh, well, I've been to New York City many times, but I'd never have been outside of New York City. And as we drove from the Albany uh, airport to Cooperstown, I I never realized. I always heard stories about the, you know the the uh, the Catskill Mountains, and you know, but I didn't realize just how rural the state of New York is. You think of New York, and you think of New York City, and the ultimate urban center of the world. And you know, an hour or so out of New York, and as you continue to to drive, it is a came. A completely different world and landscape and lifestyle. As I said, Cooperstown is uh, is off the beaten track. You're on a major highway, but then to get it, you have to get off and you have to literally drive through some roads that don't even have a line down the middle. We were driving down a street, which I will never forget now, just because uh, it just I didn't even know where the heck we were. Thank God for GPS. Uh, a friend and I went together. We're both big baseball fans, and so we went uh, just for the day. We flew into Albany. We landed. We went to the Hall of Fame. We got something to eat. We hung out at the hotel, and we came back the next day. But it was very cool. But we were driving. You know, we rented a car, and we drove from the Albany uh, airport. First, we stayed in Schenectady. 
That's where our hotel was. It's on its way to Cooperstown because there's really not any hotels. Like you would think of a hotel. I think there's some small hotels like on the top of buildings in Cooperstown. But there's no courtyard or there's no Doubletree or there's no Hyatt anywhere. This is really rural area. We're literally driving through little towns that uh that you don't even that that that, that the you don't even see a town. It's mostly farms. It was it was very enlightening to drive through New York State. At, at that area, I never drew in, drove in that area. Mountains, it looked like certainly hilly. It's very hilly and winding. Uh, you know, I think we were in the Hudson River Valley. Is pretty much where we were. It was gorgeous, just beautiful. But Cooperstown is kind of tucked away amidst uh, all these lush trees. I mean, you wouldn't even. You, well, as I said, we're, we're still we were driving down some curvy hidden roads with there's no there's not a street light to be seen thank god we were driving during the day because i don't know how you drive on these roads at night some of the roads were two you know two lane roads but many of the roads we were on didn't even have a line down the middle as i said before certainly there were no lights you know to light the way at night it must be treacherous and and one minute we were in this rural setting you know, still, and our GPS says in 0.3 miles, you'll be at your destination. And I'm like, how are we going to be at our destination? We, we look like we're in Shababi Island here. There's, no, there's, there's, there's just, there's nothing here but this road. And then we take a right, and all of a sudden, there's about a four block, if that, a four block Main Street, and that's Cooperstown. I'm sure it goes out wider but in, t- in terms of downtown cooperstown where the hall of fame is if the whole area is four or five blocks i then then i'm being generous and right in the middle of the street right in front of the right just a little past the uh the the doorway to the baseball hall of fame did i say rock and roll hall of fame i don't know baseball hall of fame <laughs> Is um is this giant flagpole? Huge flagpole right in the middle of the road. You have to drive around it. It looked like Mayberry. I thought I was in Mayberry. Cooperstown is about as close you can get to a real life Mayberry without it being a Hollywood set, at least from what I've seen. And I've traveled uh, quite a bit and I've I've gone off the beaten path, but this just had Mayberry written all over it. And the whole town of Cooperstown is built around the Baseball Hall of Fame. There's no question. That's why people are there. That's the only it's it's the only reason the downtown area exists. Once again, it's supposedly where Abner Doubleday invented baseball. And so that's where the Hall of Fame was placed. Interestingly enough, Major League Baseball even though all the inductees are affiliated with Major League Baseball, whether they played the game, whether they were owners of the game or executives in the game or broadcasters of the game, all Major League, not Minor League, Major Leagues are represented there. 
the Major League Baseball Association does not own the Baseball Hall of Fame. It is actually its own entity. It was founded by somebody, not by baseball. So that's the irony. It's the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. But it's really not run by baseball, by Major League Baseball. It's a nonprofit organization. You know, and it's players and managers and umpires and executives. And as I said, uh, you know, now broadcasters and things like that and the media that have covered baseball. But it's not really owned or run by Major League Baseball. But if you're a baseball fan, I have to tell you, you need to make a pilgrimage to the Baseball Hall of Fame. You can do it in a day. I did it. We were there for about, what, three and a half, maybe four hours. And we could have stayed there longer. And I saw so many uh, cool uh, artifacts. Every You know, you hear about, oh, well, that's going to go into the Hall of Fame. If there's a no-hitter thrown in baseball, the ball goes to the Hall of Fame. If, you know, when there's a... Um, a milestone reached, you know, the, the bat that did this, you know, or the player's uniform, whatever, Hall of Fame. It's it's kind of the, it's baseball's warehouse, if you will. It's the pack rats, base, it's a baseball pack rats dream. And uh, it was very cool not only to see some artifacts that I remember just from my lifetime and my fandom as a baseball fan to see different artifacts from the eras that I played or watched the game and I was a little kid growing up as well as some artifacts from the earliest days of baseball which now is over I believe 150 years old that uh, baseball has been around officially the hall of fame started in the first induction in the Hall of Fame, though, was in 1936. And among the players, of course, in that first class was Babe Ruth, as well as others. Uh, and there's a, a nice section dedicated to Babe Ruth. They've got his, the uniform he wore on his last game as a Yankee. Um, they've got Lou Gehrig's locker and uniforms and hats and and Mickey Mantle's bat where he hit his 500th home run which ironically was a bat that wasn't even a Mickey Mantle bat you know players have their own bats they get them made by the you know by Louisville Slugger Company and they have their names on them they like them different sizes and weights you know they're made specifically to their uh, you know, their requirements, what they like in a bat, and so they have their names on them. But ironically, from what I saw, Mickey Mantle hit his 500th home run using a Joe Pepitone bat. And you may recall, I was talking about Joe Pepitone here uh, a few podcasts ago, a few months ago, because he was my favorite player for a while in the Cubs, although he made his, his biggest uh, splash with the Yankees playing with Mickey Mantle. So that was kind of cool to see Joe Pepitone's bat. 
but every, I mean, no hitter balls, Nolan Ryan. Uh, they had a sign that they, you know, they had memorabilia there of all types of things. They had a sign that, that as I said about the, the, the Cubs having no lights until 1988, there was a, a, a group in the neighborhood of Wrigley Field at that time that did not want night baseball because they did not want all the traffic and all the crowds and all the disturbance in the neighborhood that a night game most inevitably would bring. That's when the Wrigley Field area wasn't Wrigleyville yet like it is now. It was the night games that really turned Wrigley fight the Wrigleyville area with all the bars and all that partying and all that stuff. It was the night games that started to happen in the mid eighties. Uh, but it was the night games then where now Wrigley Wrigleyville, if you will, became a tourist spot and a night spot after games before games. And so, uh, but there was a group of citizens that were vehemently protesting having lights in Wrigley Field. And uh, they went to the city council. Obviously, they ultimately lost. But uh, they were putting up a good, a good fight. And there, if you walked to a, a Cub game through the neighborhood during that period when, when they were starting to discuss lights, you saw in most of the apartment buildings down along Addison or Clark Street in the neighborhood, this yellow sign with red printing that said, No Lights. And underneath it, the name of the group was the, if I believe it correctly, it was, it was Citizens uh, United for Baseball in the Sunshine. Cubs, Citizens United for Baseball in Sunshine. Cubs. <laughs> and they had one of those signs in the Hall of Fame. And they had, uh, there was just, they had, they had, they had like, you know, the, the costumes of some of the, the famous mascots, like, uh, you know, the Philly fanatic and the, uh, the San Diego chicken. And, uh, they had one of the, 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 the light, the spinning lights when, when someone hits a home run at Comiskey park or now guaranteed rate field in Chicago here, those round, uh, pinwheel things that are on the scoreboard. They had one of those round pinwheel things in <laughs> in the Hall of Fame. They had a big on-deck circle from the Pittsburgh Pirates. It was all chewed up with spike marks. It looked very cool. As I said before, baseballs from, you know, historic balls and, uh, you know, historic bats and, and, and hats and uniforms. And they had videos of of all these different, uh, you know, in some of the exhibits of these great moments, whether, you know, big, a nice big area, not only, not only for Babe Ruth, who's a, still considered the greatest player of all time, um, but also for Hank Aaron, who broke Babe Ruth's home run record and also uh, withstood a great amount of racism in his quest back in the 70s don't forget uh, we were still well i mean you know we still don't have uh, our race relations down but in the 70s um regardless of the civil rights movement in the 60s don't forget babe ruth play i mean um hank aaron played in atlanta georgia okay in the heart and the seat 
of the Civil War, (laughs) right, in Atlanta. So the idea of an African-American breaking Babe Ruth's record in Atlanta? Yeah, Babe, uh, I mean, Hank Aaron got a lot of, uh, of hate mail and death threats as he got closer to Babe Ruth's record and ultimately broke it. And uh, it was very difficult. In fact, the irony was when, when it was done, he finally hit his 715th home run in Atlanta off of Al Downing of the Los Angeles Dodgers. When they interviewed him, this great achievement, breaking the most one of the most hallowed records in baseball history, the uh, career home run record, which most people thought would never be broken. And when Hank Aaron broke it, his first answer was, I'm glad it's over. And many people initially thought that was an odd response. You'd think you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so proud, I'm so happy, I'm so excited. And he said, I'm glad it's over because... It really wasn't common knowledge at the time of the the angry, racist uh, letters that he was getting and the comments that were being said to him at games and the death threats he was receiving. Sadly, here was this, this great personal achievement that, you know, and this quest that did excite people as baseball fans, but there was a segment of people that were not happy that an African-American was going to break Babe Ruth's record. It, it was that It was that simple. And so not only is, Babe, is uh, Hank Aaron uh, represented well in the Hall of Fame for his achievement, and he was one of the great, one of the great players of all time. He even holds the record for most runs batted in. So Hank Aaron was 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 definitely a worthy player, let's be honest. But for some people, um they could not get past his race that that an African American was going to It was bad enough that someone was going to break Babe Ruth's record because he was so beloved as the as the great immortal Babe, but then to have that record which most figure most people thought was unbreakable to have it broken by an African-American player, you know, for some people with, with racial problems, uh, that was, uh, that was not good. And, and sadly, Hank Aaron had to withstand a lot of hatred and a lot of racism in the midst of this great achievement. And so a lot of that is represented there. And so deservedly so Hank Aaron does have a, a nice, uh, you know, a prominent place in the Hall of Fame in terms of a, an, a, an exhibit that um, is dedicated to him with his uniform and the and all his many of his home run balls from like seven hundred. They're all not there. I don't know if people. Some people may not have. They still may have hold may have held on to them because the seven hundred and fifteen ball is not in the Hall of Fame. At least it wasn't where we saw it. They had 700, 701, then it went to 703, 704. There was all these balls, but there wasn't 715. 
So somebody must own it and is not, at this point, still not uh, donating it to the Hall of Fame. But like I said, you've got uh, some of the great players of all time uh, represented there. Uh, Mickey Mantle and uh, obviously Lou Gehrig, who also had a very uh, you know, sad ending as a young man, uh, came down with ALS, which still is you know incurable. And at that time, uh, people didn't even know what it was. I mean, it was sadly called Lou Gehrig's disease. Because it was so unknown, but the, the, the debilitating muscle uh, disease uh, that forced him to retire, and he passed away at age 37. And he was one of the greatest players uh, of all time, even with a shortened career. And, uh, you know, he was such a, a robust guy, and to him to, you know, to get that disease that becomes so debilitating. Um, so they had a lot of his memorabilia there, his uh, his hat and his his locker and his uniform, and they showed his farewell speech, which is still one of the great speeches of all time, where he says, today, when it was Lou Gehrig's day, when he was retiring, he said, I feel like the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And it was a great ironic line, considering that here was this man that had this terminal, incurable disease, um, and yet he said he felt like he was the luckiest man on the face of the earth, having been able to play and be so successful at the game he loved. It was a great moment. And that's on display there, too. So there's a lot of things to see. If you're a baseball fan, uh, I would suggest that you take some time out sometime. And I know it's on a lot of people's bucket lists. It had been on mine for many years. But uh, get out and do it. We must do. That's my phrase. Said by Leonardo da Vinci, we must do. So if you've always wanted to go to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, go do it. Find a way. It's not that hard. If you want to drive, you can drive there. If you want to fly, you fly into Albany. You you go about an hour or so from maybe an hour and 15 minutes. You got GPS now. Stay there for four or five hours. You can come home the next day. Boom, boom, boom. But I guarantee you'll have a good time. If you're a baseball fan, I think you'll really enjoy it. You are surrounded by nostalgia in baseball, and that's what baseball is all about. It certainly promotes its current players, but it's also steeped and markets its great history. It used to be the most popular sport in the United States. Now, it is not anymore, and I think we have to admit that. It still could be called the great American pastime because of its length pastime. You know, it doesn't have a clock. doesn't end at a specific time, even though baseball in the last year or so now has really put up some rules to speed up the game, which, which has sped it up quite a bit. It's almost taken a half hour off of an average game. With a with a pitch clock and a batter's clock that they can't, you know, do all this pre every pitch stepping out of the box and you know readjusting their gloves and their socks and everything else. It's like you know, just get in there and hit. Became ridiculous, and the pitchers too. So they've put in some new rules that have sped up the game. Um, but it's still, I think, it still can be called America's pastime. But it's not America's favorite sport anymore. There's no question about that. That's football. 
But still, as I said, baseball has a great tradition of more than 150 years and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, memories tied to it, especially for, for young kids. I would say now young kids because girls are playing too. They're playing softball, you know, in college and in, in high school and in other leagues. And some girls even are playing in little leagues. You see the Little League World Series, which will be starting in a couple of weeks. Traditionally in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, that's another thing I want to go see one time, is the Little League World Series in Williamsport. It's going to be the same kind of thing. It's out in the middle of nowhere, Williamsport, but I'm, I'm definitely want to just go to at least one day to go to that field out there and see the little kids play. I always watch that uh, on television every year and uh, and still get a kick out of it. And there's girls that now play regularly on some of those teams too. But certainly baseball and with between fathers and sons over the years, it's changing, as I said, but over the last, you know, for the majority of the time, baseball has had such a great uh, bonding experience for fathers and sons. And walking through the Hall of Fame, yes, there were some women there, no question. It wasn't just all guys. It was predominantly a male audience walking through the Hall of Fame, but there were women there. There's a lot of uh, women who are rabid baseball fans and knowledgeable baseball fans. So it's certainly not a a gender-exclusive thing. But, you know, let's be honest. uh, In the history of the game, it's always a father teaching his son how to play catch. And that classic scene from Field of Dreams. Oh, when Kevin... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The film came out in, in in the late '80s, so if you don't know the end of Field of Dreams, I'm you know I'm giving you a spoiler alert. But I'm sorry if if you haven't seen it yet, then I don't feel bad about ruining the ending. You know, give me a break. If you haven't seen it yet. I'm, I'm I'm not holding back here. If you haven't seen Field of Dreams yet, that's your fault, not mine. Been 35 years already. Jeez. But. Uh, Maybe 34. I, mean, I think it was 80, 88 or 89 it came out. But anyway, I'll tell you the, I'm telling you the ending. I don't care. Spoiler alert, schmoiler alert. If you haven't seen it yet, that's your fault. But at the end, when um, the ghost of uh, Kevin Costner's father appears on the field and Kevin Costner asks his dead father, you want to have a game of catch. Oh, I just, right now, I just said that, and I got a little tingle <laughs> right up my jaw. <laughs> Still, I remember seeing it in the theater for the first time right when the film came out. I had no idea that line was coming. I didn't know anything about the movie. It was, I saw it when it first came out, so I didn't really, there, you know, the word of mouth about what happened in it hadn't spread so much. And I was crying like a baby. My dad taught me how to play catch. We used to we used to play, you know, in the in our gangway of our house, the little walkway next to the house between our next door neighbor in Chicago. They used to call that a gangway. It was just a sidewalk that led from the front of the house to the to the yard, and that's where I learned how to be a catcher. I used to play catcher. I played third base because I loved Ron Sano, but then I became a catcher. Always wore number ten though, Ron Sano's number, but. Um, but I became a catcher, and that's where I learned. My dad would pitch to me 
in our gangway because it was a long, uh, you know, straight area, the longest, straightest area by our house. We could have done it on the sidewalk, I guess, in front of the house, but this way we were away from people walking and things like that. But that's where I learned how to catch from being pitched to. So, yeah, I mean, uh, what was so fun about the Hall of Fame was not just seeing this memorabilia, as I said before, some uh, from decades before I was even born by some of the greatest players who I have just read about and seen film about, but then also about some of the players that became legends when I was growing up, like Johnny Bench and Pete Rose and uh, Reggie Jackson and and so many of the stars from the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, that was my year of growing up and listening and, and really being a, a huge, huge baseball fan. I'll be honest with you. As much as I love baseball, uh, the steroid era turned me off to baseball. Now, don't get me wrong. When Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were battling to not only break the single-season record of home runs by 61 by Roger Maris, Babe Ruth had the, the original record of 60, and then Roger Maris broke it in 1961. And that record stood for years until the mid-'90s when uh, Mark McGuire and, and Sammy Sosa both broke it. But then we found out later that it was broken, fueled by steroids. And then, of course, after that, the ultimate record of baseball, the home run record that 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 hollowed, that hallowed, I shouldn't say hollow, it, was, it has been hollow, I guess, because it was broken once again with the help of steroids, allegedly by Barry Bonds, and he broke Hank Aaron's uh, ultimate record of 755. Aaron went on, you know, to break the 714 record of Babe Ruth's, and then hit his made his own record. He hit 40, you know, f- 40 home runs more before he retired, and he ended up with 755. But Barry Bonds broke that. You know, had 792. I mean, I don't even remember what it is because sadly. Um, it was while Bonds was hitting all these home runs, it was becoming more obvious and more apparent that steroids were involved. And while those weren't against the rules per se, it certainly changed the physicality of the ability for guys to hit these massive home runs that were flying, you know, 500 feet as well as the number of home runs so while Barry Bonds holds the record for the most home runs there's also you know a a tarnish on it it stands as the most but many don't believe or many believe that Barry Bonds took steroids and they don't really look at his record as legitimate, even though it stands. It was in the Hall of Fame. 
Um, he, though, is not in the Hall of Fame, which is ironic. But many of the people that vote, sports writers, do not believe that he belongs in the Hall of Fame because these records that he was able to compile during his career, they believe were, especially toward the end of his career, were steroid-fueled. Yeah, he hit uh, 762. Uh, I thought it was more than that, but 762. And he also broke Maris's record. He hit 73 in one season. Now, Maris's record was 61. So he broke Maris's record by 12 home runs in a season. And that, you know, that record stood for more than 30 years, and then all of a sudden it was being broke within five years. Everybody was hitting over 61 home runs. So obviously something was up. Whether Barry Bonds ultimately will get into the Hall of Fame as well as other people like Sammy Sosa and uh, Mark McGuire, who broke those records as well, single-season records as well at the time before Bonds broke theirs, but there's speculation that they took steroids, and the people who vote for the Hall of Fame don't believe that those records are really legitimate records, and so they have not elected Barry Bonds and other suspected steroid users who had inflated big numbers uh, of home runs and hits and things like that, um, most of those players, while they certainly have the stats to get in the Hall of Fame based on the history of how if you had 500 home runs or 3,000 hits or things like that, that's almost an automatic. That's the, the pinnacle of the game. But for many, they believe that a lot of these guys in the 90s, achieved in the, in the early 2000s, achieved those numbers by using steroids, which give you an unfair advantage. They're not against the rules, necessarily, but they're also viewed as enhancement drugs. So baseball has a cloud over itself. And sadly, it has a cloud over its one of its greatest records, the home run. There is an, there is an irony about the Hall of Fame. And I have to tell you, as much as I enjoyed visiting the Hall of Fame, and as much as it brought so many of my own memories of being a fan as a kid, as I said, like playing catch with my dad, all those nostalgic, cherished childhood memories, they all come rushing and flooding into you. So if you're a baseball fan since you're a little kid, once again, uh, prepare to be uh, emotionally uh, you know, taken aback. You'll, you'll be thinking of all the days when you played baseball in Little League or, or just, you know, in your backyard, as I said, or fast pitch or whatever. Whatever your baseball history of playing is, whether it was well accomplished or just in the backyard, I guarantee you, if you love baseball, you'll go to the, to the Baseball Hall of Fame and you can't help but just get wrapped up in it. They have this whole section about baseball cards, which is a huge thing. I had a ton of baseball cards. And many of the cards that I had in my era, I saw on display there. 
They even have an exhibit that calls that's called something like uh, the you know all the stuff your mom threw away. <laughs> Because everybody had these collections of baseball cards, you know, in the fifties and sixties and seventies, and when you grew up, your mom just threw them out. They, they, there was no intrinsic value at that time to baseball cards. You used to put them in your spokes on your bike to make it sound cool. And then suddenly, in the late eighties, baseball cards became a collector's goldmine, and we're seeing some cards, like the famous Honus Wagner card, go for millions. And now it's a regular collector's item. But when I was growing up, we all bought them. We all collected them, but we never thought they'd be worth anything. But my mom, as I've said many times, God bless the pack rat that my mom was. She kept all of my baseball cards. And up until a few years ago, I actually had them all. I wound up selling a great deal of them. I still kept some of my favorite players and some of my favorite cards, but... I saw many of them on display there. So as I said, so many different aspects of baseball fandom, they do a great job. They tap into every one of them. So be prepared to be emotionally moved, if not excited. When you walk through, you'll see things that remind you of your childhood and remind you of your own baseball experience, as well as being a baseball fan. So it really is a special place. But at the same time, I have to say, as much as I, I enjoyed it, and it was everything I had hoped or expected it to be, I'm glad I went. I'm glad I saw it. I don't know if I'll go ever go again, but I'm glad I saw it. I'm glad I experienced it. It was, it was fun to relive that part of my life, and, and as well as my personal memories, my own cherished memories of personally playing baseball through the years, but then also of being a fan. But as I said, in the 90s, after the steroid thing, I, I kind of was a little turned off by baseball. People in the game knew what was going on. The owners knew what was going on. The players certainly knew what was going on. But no one did anything because it was revitalizing the game and making it popular again. And if you know, everybody was couldn't wait to see these guys hitting all these home runs. So baseball was implicit in the the breaking of the rules its ownership its commissioner everybody and so that turned me off and i have to say for the last 15 or 20 years i have really not been as much of a baseball fan in terms of watching it and keeping up with it as much as i used to be so that's why the the hall of fame was kind of fun for me in many ways because it does glorify the past and that is pretty much my memory now and my memories of baseball and my are mostly from up until, you know, the early 2000s. But I have to say, at least the last 15 years or so, I have not followed baseball. So I couldn't tell you. I watch a a, 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 a game now, or I watch the All-Star game, the best players, and I still don't know who many of them are, if not all of them. So uh, that I feel bad about because I still love the game. I still watch the game. I've gone to some Cub games, some baseball games, I've been to many of the parks. I've been to Yankee Stadium. I've been to Fenway Park. I've been to Camden Yards. I'm still a baseball fan at heart. I've been to uh, you know Philadelphia. I've been to Atlanta. I've been to many of the baseball parks, the great parks, Candlestick Park. Um, so I'm, it's still in my blood. I've been to the Field of Dreams twice in Dyersville, uh, uh, Iowa. 
So as much as I have turned away from baseball, it's still in my blood. It's still a part of me, and it does hold a special place within my memories. So that's why I wanted to go to Cooperstown. And as I said, it it was everything I hoped it would be. It brought back a lot of great memories for me and made me remember how much I loved baseball. And maybe, who knows, maybe I'll start to watch it a little more. Right now, the Cubs are on a hot streak. So, you know, I mean, I certainly was watching when the Cubs won the World Series, right? Um, but I haven't watched the Cubs in several years since they haven't got they, since they haven't been good, and I and I don't even have their marquee network, so I can't even watch baseball the Cub games if I wanted to. That's how much I've kind of moved away from being a baseball fan. But as I said before, baseball is so much about your memories and the past, and that's what the Hall of Fame certainly plays up to. Uh, that gallery of plaques the gallery of fame is certainly great when you just see all these plaques of all these players and i took pictures of many of them and so there you see joe dimaggio and as i said before you know babe ruth or uh you know and some of the players from my era johnny bench willie stargell uh so many of these guys that were just you know, I watched every week on Monday night baseball and Saturday night baseball. And when I went to Cub games, I mean, I was a Cub fan, so I was more of a National League uh, fan than an American League. But certainly when the World Series came, you know, Rod Carew and Harmon Killebrew and, as I said, the, the Oakland A's, Reggie Jackson, who was always in the American League, uh, and so many of these uh, these great players and some of the great World Series that took place. Kirk Gibson's amazing home run, which I remember watching on television in the uh, in the World Series and the '86 World Series between the Mets and the Red Sox when the ball went through Bill Buckner's legs. So a lot of memories of being a baseball fan, and I was able to really tap into that going to the Hall of Fame. But as I said before, the great irony is that the two most respected records in the game home runs and hits the two players that hold those records are not inducted into the hall of fame how ironic is that barry bonds who holds the record for most home runs 762 is not in the hall of fame because there is speculation that he hit a majority of those home runs or a great number of those home runs using steroids. So there's not legitimate in many people's views. And so the, the voters are not voting him in. Most of those steroid era players are not in the hall of fame. And then the, the, the hit I mean, the hardest thing in baseball to do is get a hit, right? That's the hardest thing. The best players the best players in baseball for 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 almost the whole history of the game get a hit three out of ten times. That's how you get a 300 average, right? The best players at all, the only thing that the best that they're able to do on a on a consistent basis is get three out of ten. Out of every ten bats, they get three hits. And that's the pinnacle. Only one player. Averaged 400, four hits out of every 10 at-bats, 406, in fact, was Ted Williams. And he's the only player to have finished the season at 
the 400. There are times within a season that players are hitting 400, but they don't finish the entire season at 400. The closest, I remember in the 70s or early 80s, was George Brett, who was over 400 for a good portion of the season. was a great hitter with the uh, Kansas City Royals and ultimately finished, I believe, at like 393. So the best players only get a hit three out, you know, get three hits out of ten. But Pete Rose, Charlie Hustle, who was the epitome of of baseball for his entire career throughout the seventies and eighties and early sixties or late sixties, ultimately broke Ty Cobb's record of most hits and ended up with 4,256 hits. The most hits of anybody who's ever played the game. Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, all those people, Lou Gehrig, all these names that you keep hearing about. And Pete Rose, during my lifetime, and I saw him play live many times at Wrigley Field, He's not in the Hall of Fame. Now, his has nothing to do with steroids. His is in another scandal. When he was a manager of the Reds later in the late 80s, it was revealed that he was betting on baseball, which is against the rules. Players, anybody involved with the game, cannot bet on baseball. You are banned for life. This heads back to the the infamous Chicago Black Sox scandal of 1919 when the Chicago White Sox were a huge favorite to win the World Series and gamblers paid off many of the players to, to play bad and lose the series. Everybody was going it was, it was to... It was a clear that the, that the White Sox were going to win, so the gamblers paid off many of the best White Sox players to not do well They placed bets on the team they were playing and made a ton of money. That was revealed, and the commissioner of baseball banned many of the players that had been proven to have been taking some money. And that's when baseball and gambling became enemies. You know, for the integrity of the game, which makes sense, If you were caught gambling in any way, shape, or form, you were banned for life. And when it was revealed that Pete Rose, even though he wasn't a player, he was the manager, and even though most of the evidence showed, for the most part, I believe, the evidence showed that while he bet on baseball, he did not bet against his team. Like the, the Black Sox laid down to lose on purpose. Pete Rose bet on his team to win. So he wasn't betting against his team. He wasn't taking out players or not playing players so you'd win bets. He would certainly have the ability to do that and put a less competitive team on the field. He was betting on his team to win. But he was still betting. And the rule is a rule, and I get it. But he was banned for life from baseball by the commissioner at the time, Bart Giamatti, the father of Paul Giamatti, the actor, by the way. And 
Pete Rose is now 82 years old and has still been banned, even though gambling and baseball in, in 2023 is very different. Major League Baseball endorses and encourages betting on games, not by players, but by fans. They even have opened up sports books for people to bet on games by the inning in the stadiums, including Wrigley Field here in Chicago. So the 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 relationship between gambling and baseball back in 1919 has changed when the when the rule was was put in place has changed drastically. And so for baseball in today's world to have embraced gambling, encouraging gambling, making it as easy as you can when you're at a game, you have to call your bookie anymore. You walk you walk and get a hot dog and place a bet. And yet Pete Rose, the greatest hitter of all time, was banned from the game in 1989. It's been 34 years that he's been banned from baseball, and he has been banned because the writers once again say, well, he broke the rules, just like Barry Bonds. He can't get in the Hall of Fame. But it seems to me that while the steroid uh, uh, incident is different in that the players can be tested for that or whatever, and, and, and it is an unfair advantage, baseball seems to me is very, well, it's full of hypocrisy. If you're encouraging gambling now, if you're endorsing gambling, if you're making it, if you're building sports books to bet in your stadiums, then hasn't Pete Rose served enough punishment of being banned from the game for the last 34 years at 82 years old? Hasn't he served enough time? Hasn't he served his punishment? Doesn't he deserve to be forgiven? Or not even forgiven. You served your time. We're going to lift the ban. He's 82. Doesn't he deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? Some people say, no, he's a cheater. He should never be in the Hall of Fame. Okay, I guarantee you, when Pete Rose passes away, he will be inducted in the Hall of Fame. There are people that, Pete Rose was not, is not, a great, was not, was not necessarily a great guy. Got a very con- controversial life off the field, not even with just the gambling. And he didn't get along with a lot of those, the writers who vote. But for what he did on the field, he is one of the greatest players of all time and stands in that same class as Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio. Even above them in some ways, because he had the most hits of anybody who ever played the game, the hardest thing to do in the game, and Pete Rose did it, and he did it by 65 hits more than Ty Cobb. You say, well, Jim, a rule is a rule. I get it. But society has changed. Our, our views on gambling have changed. And to me, the Hall of Fame is about the greatest players who have ever played. And Pete Rose, who holds the record 
for the hardest thing to do in the game is not in there. If ultimately people say, you know, you, you know, he can't be forgiven, he can't, you know, he broke the rules. Okay. You know what my answer to that is, especially here in 2023? Did you see recently that one of the women, the convicted murderers in the Manson family killings, one of the murderers, the no she wasn't just watching, she murdered as part of the Manson family, was recently paroled. Did you see that? If we can, as society, as a society, if we can, quote, unquote, forgive a Manson murderer, a Manson murderer, some of the worst and horrific murders in the history of this country, an admitted, confessed murderer, Brutal murders, killing a pregnant woman. If we as a society can parole and and, and by parole forgive this act because she served enough time and is a good citizen now, if we can parole and release from prison a Manson murderer after 50 years, I think we can forgive Pete Rose for betting on some baseball games. Let's put this in perspective, folks. To me, the most cruel thing was that Ron Sano, for more than 20 years, was kept out of the Hall of Fame because a lot of the players and the, and the writers didn't like him, personally. His stats definitely made him worthy of being in the Hall of Fame. But he rubbed people the wrong way personally while he was a player. His stats never changed from when he retired. They were always the same. But the year after he died, then he got inducted. How cruel is that? That is a cruelty that I can't even imagine. They did the the, the, the powers that be hated Ron Sano so much that they were so cruel to him that they never wanted him to experience himself while he was alive in his lifetime of being introduced as and being a a chance to, to celebrate being a Hall of Fame player. They waited until he died. The next year, how cruel is that? His stats were never different. But they waited, and then the next year, boom, he got in with no problem. You tell me what was going on. How cruel is that? How vindictive is that? How vengeful is that? That you don't want this person to experience being a Hall of Famer. That's all he cared about was playing baseball. And he had the stats to be amongst the best at his position and the best that ever played. And the the year after he dies, they vote him in. Oh, well, his family can enjoy it. Fine, that's great. But he never got a chance to be to, to give an induction speech. He never got a chance to see his plaque up on that wall, which I have a chance to see, but he doesn't have a chance to see. He never got a chance to be introduced as Hall of Famer Ron Sano, which he was and which he is. 
but he never got a chance to experience that in his lifetime because of, of petty vengeance and, 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 and petty jealousy. How cruel is that? And we're going to do this to Pete Rose too? One of the greatest players of all time who holds the record for most hits as well as other records. And, and, and there's no question that he's, that he's eligible to be in the Hall of Fame. Give me a break. His stats are ridiculous. They're so great. As well as, as I said before, the greatest stat of all time. The most hits of anybody who's ever played the game. The hardest thing to do in the game. And the guy that did it is in the Hall of Fame. He's 82 years old. Lift the ban and put him in the Hall of Fame and let the poor guy, whether he's a jerk off the field or not, on the field, he's one of the best ever. And that's what the Hall of Fame is about. The accomplishments on the field, because most people in that Hall of Fame were not angels, including Babe Ruth. And we know that. You say, wow, Jim, you're pretty... um passionate about it yeah i am so much so that when i went to the hall of fame i brought a rose in my pocket and i carried with me throughout the entire time i walked through the hall of fame and when we got finally to the at the very end when we got to the hall the 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 gallery of plaques where all the plaques are of the inducted players into the hall of fame There were some empty spots where plaques will go in the next couple of years. Right next to the most recent inductees. There was a couple, about four or five or six empty spots where a plaque then will be applied to this this kind of white piece of marble. They were empty. You know what I did? I took my rose, a rose, right? Pete Rose. And I taped it to one of those empty marble blocks. That was my way of protesting. That was my way of saying Pete Rose belongs in this Hall of Fame. There's a rose in the Hall of Fame. No one saw me do it. I didn't bring attention to it. After I did it, I kind of walked away, and then I just kind of hovered to watch. And I don't even know if people understood the significance of it or not. But I took a picture of it. It's on my Facebook page. So at least for a few minutes or at least for a few hours, I'm not sure when, if anybody took it down. For all I know, it's still sitting there. I didn't go back to the Hall of Fame the next day. But in my own little way of protesting and, and making a point, I put up a rose in the Hall of Plaques at the Baseball Hall of Fame to let people know that Pete Rose belongs there. If we can forgive a Manson murderer, we can forgive Pete Rose. He served his time. Baseball needs to change its mind and forgive and welcome Pete Rose back into the game and put him in the Hall of Fame where he belongs. Not just my rose, but an official plaque for one of the greatest players and the all-time hit leader, Pete Rose.
I enjoyed the Baseball Hall of Fame, but for me, it's really not the perfect place until the greatest hitter of all time, proven by the amount of hits he's had, is among those players celebrated and honored. I did what I could, Pete, at least for a couple of minutes or maybe for a couple of hours, maybe for a couple of days, I don't know. I put Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame. Now it's baseball's turn to do the same. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast, we are there. Don't forget to tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion are much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 376. I'm Jim Toronto. I'm here on business. I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic from the end of the web to your screen.